God has already blessed America, amen? It's time we better get to blessing Him in reverse. I thank you for your prayers for myself and family as we were away. It was a great time to be in Yosemite and to be rejuvenated. It was nice to get back to our bed last night and tell my wife, I bet you I said about 50 times, Lord, thank you for this bed. But then we concluded, said if he had us to sleep on a rock, we'd still love him. Amen. But it was a great time to be away. I would encourage you. I've seen some beautiful places all over the world. I've never seen anything as beautiful as Yosemite. And so if you ever get a chance to go, I'd encourage you to go. And then I want to encourage you as well uh, to be about our prayer, fast, connect, celebrate. And so uh, assuming you've done your prayer and fast, pray that you would be connecting with someone here uh, in the congregation. And then this week, We'll have time to do the Lord's Supper devotional. It started actually this morning. So I pray that you have started that. Next Sunday we will celebrate what the Lord has done during that time. So be turning with me to Luke chapter 6. It's already been mentioned how much I love fire and fireworks. So. Any of you like myself love trivia? Let me ask you this question. What is the single most powerful physical bomb that has ever been detonated in history? It's up on the screen, or it should be. SAR bomb. AN-602 hydrogen bomb. The Soviets detonated it October 30th, 1961. 57 megatons worth of TNT. That's 2,700 times more powerful and the bomb dropped at Nagasaki. Quite the impact. Yet it has nothing on the bombs Jesus dropped in the Sermon on the Level. And that's the message, the title of the message this morning. The impact spiritually of these four spiritual H-bombs over the last 2,000 years is simply immeasurable. In this message, Jesus dramatically leveled with the twelve and his disciples annihilating the world's value system in the hearts and minds of his disciples forevermore. Alistair Begg refers to this sermon as a Christian manifesto. In it, Jesus outlines what it is to be a true disciple. Poor, hungry, sad, and hated. Does that sound like something y'all all want to be? Verse, the siren call of the world is what? To be rich, full, happy, and popular. The SAR bomb was a one-time momentary impact. These four spiritual bombs have impacted the world and Christianity for 2,000 years, basically blowing the world's values to bits. And it's radical preaching. Hughes said this, he said, it's concentrated theological epigrams or short little sayings that detonate with increasing effect, blowing away shallow talk of discipleship and thereby calling for true commitment. Remember the title of our sermon series, it is Follow Me. And so if we truly want to follow Christ, we can just say, well, these are just some cute little sayings of Jesus, or that's a good word, or man, that's just shocking, I couldn't ever really uh, uh, follow that. Or we can take them to heart as this is what it truly means to follow Jesus Christ. As your pastor, I suggest you do the last. And so what we're going to do this morning is first we're going to set some background, and then we're going to examine 
the blessing. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 6. I'm going to back up and read verses, starting at verse 17 through verse 23. Luke writes, And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets, the word of God, to the people of God, preaching the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you will just speak through me. Father, help me to decrease and you to increase through me and preach to your people today what you would have them to know about what it truly means to follow Jesus and how we are to renounce the world's value system and take up your value system. Father, I pray that each person will leave here today with something that they can take and apply to their life that they will look more like your precious Son, Jesus. For it's in His holy and righteous name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So first, the background. Luke 6, 20-49 has been entitled the Sermon on the Plateau and Matthew 5-7, the Sermon on the Mount. It's been the fodder of countless scholarly debates for thousands of years are these one and the same or are they different? Because there's some similarities and there's some differences. Or maybe they're the same event and it's just varying accounts and Luke's kind of editing out what he doesn't want to include in there. Or maybe Luke and Matthew are recording actually different events and it's different sermons but they're similar. And so we may say, well why hasn't God given us more certainty about this? I always joke with my patients, do you know why God created sinuses? Any of you ever wondered? I thought Tennessee allergies were bad till we got out to California and all those pine trees were blooming. My eyes were scratching out of my head. But you know why God gave us sinuses? To give doctors something to do. <laughs> you know why God didn't give us certainty here? To give Bible scholars something to do. To argue about this, whether they're one and the same or different. Well, we have to keep in mind that Jesus was an itinerant preacher, which means that he would travel all around several hours a day, several days a week, one village to the next, all over the place. He was preaching sermons. And so during that time, guess what the disciples probably heard? The same sermon with different variations, right? Have you heard me say some things over the last four years that have been common throughout sermons? Have you not read? I've, as Jimmy said, given my address. And so certain things you've heard me say over and over. And so Moore says this habit of preachers is really what explains this. And it's probably that Luke has given a separate sermon on a different occasion, but with similar things that Jesus is saying. One thing that we know for certain is the intended audience. Look at what it says 
there in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on who? His disciples. And so this message, the audience, is to who? The disciples. So you've got to think about, there's basically Jesus, the twelve, and then it says a great crowd of His disciples, and then it says a great multitude of people from all over the seacoast. And so the big application that I want you to get is this, that Jesus is standing before you this morning, not in me, but in His Word and through His Word, preaching this to you today. Still 2,000 years later, He is saying this to His disciples. And so if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, you better get the earwax out of your ear and your best focus not on what lunch is going to be or what's going to happen at the 4th of July show or how much barbecue you're going to eat between now and then, but you need to focus on what Jesus wants to say to you this morning about what it truly means to be blessed to follow Him and to be woe pitied when you then chase after the world. And so Jesus, you know, it's it and just... That's a good word, Pastor Jesus. Man, we really appreciate that. That was great this morning. That's how they do was sometimes it to Jimmy. Man, that was a great word. No, it ain't a great word. That's a way of life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, oh, I want y'all to leave out of here and say, man, that was a great message, Jesus. He's saying, I want you to live like this. Every day, live like this. And so as we study through these, we're going to study in true Hebrew fashion. Jimmy, it's amazing that you uh, read Psalm 103 because I was going to use it as an illustration. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, and all that is within me. It's the same thing, it's just saying it in a different way. The Psalms do this repeatedly. So you say this, and then it's like a simile. We've got a teacher back here, it's like a simile, okay? But then there's also another way to do parallelism, which is to say a positive and then a negative. And so there's the blessing. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you have salvation and are this. And woe, not woe, shaking your finger. Woe is in these people are to be pitied. Let me tell you, when you go out to California... And you see how people are living. I said what we need in the middle of California is a rigid, good, fundamental church that will bring back people to the Lord. Because when you see how they are living, then you understand, whoa, not whoa, shake your finger at them, but these people are to be pitied. Because unless they change their way, they are headed for an eternal damnation. And so let's look at these. The first thing we're going to look at is the blessing of poverty. So the first spiritual H-bomb Jesus hurls, look at what it says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You say, well, I wasn't expecting that one. You see, because in the 21st century, how do we view poor and rich? We view poor as how I don't want to live and rich as how I want to live. Amen? And so when I'm in Uganda and I see a mud hut held together by cow dung, that's not how most of you want to be living. Amen? Amen. But now when I see a beachfront home in Jamaica with your own little white beach and your own crystal clear blue water, that's how most of you want to be living. Amen? And see, in the first century, the first to live in a mud hut 
in Uganda is God is cursing you because of your own sin. And when God gives you the big beachfront home in Jamaica, then He's blessing you because you're a good little Jew. You've heard me say before what? It's hard to keep a good heresy down, isn't it? Do you know that this is still today going on? We call it the health and wealth prosperity gospel. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, He might, but He might give you a life that is the exact opposite of that. Amen? And so, look at what He says first. Blessed, the poor. Is that an absolute? We're going to do a kind of little pattern through here. Is that an absolute? No. The Old Testament doesn't see poverty as a blessing per se. In fact, in Proverbs 38-9, it can be a blessing or a curse. Think about God. At times, He gave His people wealth as a blessing, did He not? Remember when the, they left Egypt? They plundered Egypt. And they took lots of stuff with them. They went to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. He blessed them in King David and Solomon's time with immense wealth. Think about Jesus' day. Turn to Luke 8. It says, Soon afterward, He, Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with Him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so Jesus had some disciples who had some money and they were able to take care of Him. Think about in Luke 19, he calls a rich man, Zacchaeus, right? In the early church, do you remember that Paul uh, converts a lady, Lydia, who was a seller of rich stuff. And so it is not necessarily that God does not have rich people in the kingdom, amen? And further, human experience teaches us that being poor is what? Miserable. I'm going to tell you, when I've been in Africa and I was in Swamp Village and saw a lady who had six kids and they all had worms and I asked her where she was getting her water from because there's a clean borehole well and then there's just another one that's just like a catch well. She said she was getting it from there because it's much closer to walk to than the two miles over here to this well from her house. But when she's dipping out the water from there, she can literally see worms crawling in it. Now you go ask that woman that is poor beyond belief and ask her, hey, is this God's blessing? Is this a blessing that you have to live like that? What do you think she's going to say? No. No. So, is it an absolute? No. Is it a maybe? Absolutely. Because what did the disciples do? It said they left everything. After Jesus gave them the biggest catch that they had ever gotten. And you ever notice how bad fishermen they were? Every time you read, what does it say? They caught nothing all night long. And so they catch two boats full of fish. And Jesus says, now you come on and you just bid that goodbye. It says that what? Jesus didn't even have a place to lay His head. In 2 Corinthians 8, we read that the Macedonians were so poor. You remember the word I gave you? It was bathysphere. It's a word that literally means they were so poor. Bottom of the ocean poor. That's literally what it means. That word means to go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. We would say scraping the barrel poor, wouldn't we? 
So sometimes it may be that that's what God calls us to. Here's the big issue. Wealthy people feel insulated by what? Their money. And are their needs as acute? No. Do rich people really pray, give us this day our daily bread? It's hard to imagine doing that when you've got a bank account balance that is a single number and then six zeros after it, right? It's hard to really truly feel your needs as acute when you're sipping $10,000 per night wine from a Caribbean resort, isn't it? And so what do people say that are rich? Me need Jesus? You're a jokester. I don't need Jesus. I got everything that I need. Right? And then a further temptation for the rich is to do what? Compromise God's Word to stay on top. Right? Now on the other hand, the poor are faced to do what? Truly trust God. When they pray, give us this day our daily bread, and the rat just took the last crumb in the pantry, they really mean give us this day our daily bread, don't they? They truly understand the force behind Philippians 4.19 that you will meet my every need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because I ain't got any myself. And there's no static interference. My wife, when we were driving in the mountains of California, as soon as one episode of static comes on, she's changing the, the station. I'm like, honey, you just changed it off the only station out of 106 FM you know, numbers. But the poor have no static interference with their worship of God. It says that you cannot serve God and money, right? Well, guess what? If you got no money, you ain't got any static interference with your worship with the Lord. Amen? And so Jesus gave a very stark example of this. Flip ahead to Luke 12. In fact, you remember what Jesus said when you do find the kingdom, what it would be like? He said when you do finally find the kingdom, He said it would be like you find this pearl and you go and you sell everything else that you've got just so you can have this. It's just like I said, I appreciate the bed that we have that we slept on last night. But I'm going to tell you what, if God had me sleeping on a rock, I've been at the top and I've been at the bottom. And the only thing that has ever sustained me through all of that is Jesus Christ. Amen. And I don't care if I'm sleeping on a rock. That's what I'm going to worship. And so look at what Jesus said. A lot of us need to really take this to heart. In Luke 12, 15, first, He said, Take care and be on your guard against all covenants, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's a word for America today, isn't it? We've got athletes, and what do we think about? You heard the latest? Man, he's got $55 million. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. I don't care how many zeros you got behind your bank account balance. If you ain't got Jesus, you got nothing. And if you got nothing in the bank account and it says minus $500 and you got the Lord, you're the richest person on the planet. Amen? And so look at what he says. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you in verse 22, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on it. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. We would do well to learn that, wouldn't we? If God takes care of the birds, 
Ain't He going to take care of us? No matter how much food we got in the pantry or don't. And so, here's the reward. Because of their faith and trust in God, look at what it says that they have. You have the kingdom of God. They are fabulously wealthy. And so then look at what he says there in verse 24. The woe to you who are rich. Is that an absolute? No. Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Solomon was rich. Think about Joseph of Arimathea. He was rich. The issue is as disciples of Christ were called to seek what? Christ over money. Seek first the kingdom of God. And Scripture gives us some words to chew on. I want us to for sure get to these two verses to cross-reference. Look at James 5. And as we're turning there, I want to put this in your ear because most of you already, I hear you saying, well, I ain't rich, Pastor. Well, you know what? I beg to differ. Because I've seen broke people and ain't none of y'all in here broke. I've seen people living on a dollar a day. Barely scraping by. While we sit here and we drive to an air-conditioned building in an air-conditioned car from an air-conditioned house. Brothers and sisters, we are all in this country rich compared to the world standards. And so look at what he says. Come now, you re- rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That's what the unbelieving wealthy are like. First Timothy 6, I'll read this. This is what the believing wealthy should be like. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so here's some questions for us. Us in America that are rich, we're constantly assaulted with the temptation to rely on them. Can we not rely on them and yet have them? We're dulled to our need by plenty. Can we have plenty and then still feel our need? Can we have money and still live a humble life? We value money over Jesus sometimes. Can we truly understand that where our treasure is, that's where our heart's at? And can we truly understand that we don't need to just make more to keep more? Wesley, John Wesley said, make all you can so you can give away all you can. Jesus said it's more blessed to what? Give than to receive. Kevin was talking about in Sunday school how many words of Jesus are in Scripture. That's the only words of Jesus recorded outside the Gospels. You think they mean something? Otherwise, what? You've received your consolation. Y'all ever watched a game show and somebody wins the car on Prices Right and then the other poor guy, it's like, here's your consolation prize, you get a bedroom suit. And you're thinking, great. 
That's how the rich are going to be one day, but it's going to be worse than that. They're going to get their consolation prize and it's going to be an eternity apart from God. When they die, there's going to be no comfort. Alright, so that's the blessing of poverty. Next, the blessing of hunger. The second bomb Jesus throws. Look at this in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. In verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Blessed are the hungry. Is that an absolute? No. Jesus himself, the accusation against him was what? That he was a glutton and a drunkard. Well, where did they get that? Well, at the beginning of his ministry, John 2, he's at a wedding feast. In the beginning, we've already looked at, Matthew holds what? A great feast for him. The end of his life, John 12, Lazarus and Mary and Martha prepare a feast for him. The early church, what is Peter told? Arise, kill, and eat. Is it an absolute no, but is it a maybe yes? Remember what Jesus told the disciples in Luke 9. He said, you go out and you serve and take what? A bunch of crackers with you? He said, nothing. You take nothing. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.27 said what? He was frequently hungry. Already referenced the Macedonians who were bathosphere poor. James 2.15 said some of his readers had no food and no clothes. So the issue is what? Who and what are you really finding your true sustenance in? Are you finding it in the food that you eat or in the food that you eat? Think about most of us as Americans. We don't really truly know what it's like to live in a third world and be hungry, do we? When we went to Ecuador, you remember Vic, they wrapped up, little girl wrapped up a chicken bone in a napkin We would just throw the thing away. She wrapped it up in a napkin to take it home because they were going to use it for soup. When I go to Africa and folks fix me oxtail soup, I'm going to tell you, if you ever see me at a restaurant order an oxtail soup off the menu, call 911, call Lakeside something, I've lost it. I'm not going to order that number one off the menu. I'm going to order a filet if my wife says my cholesterol was okay that week. But when I'm there, you know what I do? I lick up every bit of that oxtail soup. You know why? Because those people that I just ministered to that don't have anything compared to me gave everything into that soup so that I could have some sustenance. I'm going to drink it down and I'm going to eat it down. Because they put their all into that. But you know how most of us run around in America? We got our freezer stuff. We got our refrigerators overflowing. We got our pantries full. And what do we say? There ain't nothing to eat around here. Isn't that true? That's how we act. And so Jesus is saying two things here. The tables will turn. He who is first will be what? Last. And he who is last will be first. If you're well fed now, you're going to be hungry then. And if you're hungry now, guess what? You will be well fed then because you got an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can I get an amen? Amen. And second he points out is this. And let me throw this in there. We need to really eat to live, not live to eat. You know what I'm saying? And then here's the second thing. There's a food more important than bread. What did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. What did the New Testament command us? Like a newborn babe crave the milk. 
Any of you got kids, you know how a newborn baby craves milk. You cannot get the bottle prepared fast enough, can you? Is that us? Is that us when we wake up in the morning? We wake up in the morning and we get our cell phones. I'm the world's worst at it. Do we, you know, turn on the TV to see who won the MVP, who won the ball game last night because we fell asleep in the 15th inning? Or do we get up and do we say, Lord, I'm like a newborn baby going crazy because I want to get some of your milk. That's how we should be. And so then he says, woe to the well-fed. Is that absolute? Is God calling us to be on just a perpetual fast and to look like physical Ethiopians, every one of us? Is there only going to be physical Ethiopians in heaven? No. no. He's, never, he's not saying you can never have a good meal or get stuffed at Thanksgiving. The issue as disciples of Christ is if this is your true Gatorade. This is your true thirst quencher. Your true thirst quencher is not what the world has to offer. It is Jesus Christ. Dig down in the well and drink up from Him. And then you know what you do? You don't just drink it up. You then go and you pour it out to other people because Jesus said that you will become what? A river. Now we saw some rivers this week in Yosemite. And you know what they were doing? Gushing over the side of the mountain. And you got too close to them, you gone and ain't nobody going to find you for months, right? We would, should become rivers. Jesus should just be pouring out of us. You know why? Because there are people out there that are spiritually starved and hungry. We had a lady, we ate one night at a restaurant uh, different from where we were staying. And I said, I asked her, I said, Eileen, I said, we're about to pray for our food here in a minute. I said, can we pray for you? Do you know that woman was so spiritually starved? She said, we used to do this in Oregon where I live. She grabbed, we didn't have to grab hands as a family. She grabbed Matthew's hand and grabbed Vicky's hand and we all grabbed hands around the table and she sat there while we prayed with hands together. You know why? Because that woman is spiritually starving to death. And we need to be pouring our life into people like that. We should pity those that ain't. Those that would just get well fed and all this here for this little bit of time, but for eternity, they're going to be starved and spiritually thirsty. For eternity. Infinity times infinity. Woe to them. Next look at the blessing of sorrow in verse 21, the third bomb. I mean, they're sitting there, the eyes are watering, the disciples, they're coughing from all the dust from the world's value system starting to crumble, and then boom, here comes this third one. Look at what he says in verse 21 again. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So blessed to weep. Is that absolute? No. What did Jesus say in John 10.10? I came to give you life, what? More abundantly. You see, the Jewish concept of eternal life is not just sometime out in eternity that you get to live forever. It's that now you get to live forever. Jesus isn't a cosmic killjoy, but that's the popular opinion that once you become a Christian, fun's out the door, right? I mean, have you not read? 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says what? Rejoice always. The whole book of Philippians is joy. So it's not an absolute, but is it a maybe? Yes. What was prophesied of Jesus by Isaiah? 
That he would be a man acquainted with what? Sorrows. Was that true in his life? This morning we had to start our Lord's Supper devotional and it said, what aspect means the most to you personally? The fact that Jesus Christ, knowing that He was about to have to drink my sin, had been thinking about that day that was coming for three years. You know, when you're on vacation, you wake up that first day and you're like, man, we got a whole week ahead of us. And then the last day, you're like, man, here it comes. we got to go home. Can you imagine the morning Jesus woke up? Knowing the Last Supper was coming. Knowing He was about to be beat. We see it in the garden. He's down on His hands and knees, isn't He? And He knows He's about to drink Buffy Cook's sin. The nastiness that goes through my mind. The nastiness of stuff I've done in my life. And He's sitting there. He's in such anguish. What? He's sweating drops of blood. So it might be true that that will be true in your life. What was it in Paul's life? He said that he so loved Epaphroditus that when he almost died, he said that I would have, if he would have died, I'd have had sorrow times sorrow. He said in Romans 9, I just assumed that I would be cut off and never know the Lord if my Jewish brothers would be able to know Him. He said my whole life is poured out as a drink offering. You know what a drink offering is? A drink offering, you don't get to just like pour half of the bottle of Sprite. You pour the whole thing out. So that might be our lot, brothers and sisters. But the issue really is not that. The issue is this. Number one, do you have sorrow over your own self? Get in a closet with Psalm 51 and close up the closet and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm telling you. I'm guarantee if you like me, if you, all your thoughts and this and that could be flashed across the screen and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis... You'd be embarrassed, but then when we showed yours, you'd be embarrassed too. But we ought to be broken over our sin. Amen? Amen. And then we ought to be sorrowful for others. Second Peter 2. I'll read you from there. Second Peter 2, 7 to 8, if you will. Taking a reference. It says, And if he rescued righteous light, greatly distressed by the sensuous conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. When we see what's going on in our country, brothers and sisters, do we say, well, that's just the Bible fulfilling itself. Well, that's just, you know, how people are going to be. Things are getting worse and worse. Are we truly tormented in our soul? When I was walking down the streets of San Francisco, I wasn't laughing at these people that are sitting there perversing themselves. Men that are dressing as women and inviting other men to gawk at them. Or flags everywhere that say that homosexuality is perfectly 100% okay. I love homosexual people. I have homosexual patients. But God is not pleased with that behavior. And so when I'm walking down to that, that street, I just say, well, well, that's it. Or I'm out like, like, Lord, this grieves my soul. I honestly am grieved. I love, as Jimmy said earlier, Jimmy, you were talking about love, you know, when uh, you think about your kid, what do you think about? 
I was sitting there thinking about Matthew, and I loved that child. But my heart was going out for him thinking, Lord, I can't imagine what this child is going to have to live in. If it's already as bad as it is now, how bad is it really going to get? You remember the rich man in Lazarus? Oh Lord, please send them back. Don't let my brothers come down here. But we pass people that are lost and going to hell and we don't give much of an eye about it to it. I love what Hughes said. He said, we're called to weep over lost souls, over people who go into eternal darkness without Christ. We're to weep over the world's misery, over the injustice that falls on so many helpless people, over the unfairness that victimizes the weak, over child abuse, battered women, adultery, divorce, betrayals, rejection, loneliness, those who laugh now but who unless they turn to Christ will suffer God's condemnation forever. But here's the reward. If we refuse to laugh and joke over our own sin and over the brokenness of this world and we share the gospel with a lost and dying world, you know what we have? A great invitation, the marriage supper of the Lamb awaiting us. If you come to our house Tuesday, you'll see our dining room table. It's not the prettiest thing in the world. There's scratches all over it. Fork bangs where the kids are banging their forks into it. Teeth marks. But you know what it really don't tell? The story of countless joy and laughter that has surrounded that table. I can't really even begin to tell you the joy that it's going to be to sit beside someone at the marriage supper of the Lamb and Jesus turns to you and says, you know why that person's sitting here? Because yeah, right. you filled that seat, brother. Hallelujah! We'll be jumping up and down. Thank you, Lord, for using this old crazy boy here to bring this brother or sister to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so he says, woe to those who laugh. Is that an absolute? No. Jesus ain't on the PA system saying, all Christian Eeyores, please come to the front. All Christian Eeyores, please come to the front. This ain't the ninth beatitude. Blessed are the grim, cheerless Christians. It ain't a call for all of us to go jump off into the baptismal tank, be baptized in vinegar, dump ashes on our head, running around with headphones on, playing funeral music. It's not what Jesus is calling us to, is it? Spurgeon said this, but that's how a lot of us act, isn't it? Spurgeon said this, he said, some preachers he knew appeared to have neckties twisted around their souls. Robert Louis Stevenson said, I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. I mean, that's pitiful. I love what Oswald Sanders said. He said, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? Is laughter pagan? We've already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. Amen! We ought to come up in here and we ought to laugh and we ought to dance and we ought to jump and we ought to shout because we have the greatest thing that the world could ever possibly know. But those that don't, and they laugh and laugh and laugh at their sin. We ought to feel woe and pity for them. Amen. The final blessing is rejection. You ever watch one of those war movies and it's like a bomb hits 
It's like a deafening blast. You see, it's like no sound at all, and everything's moving slow motion. That's kind of what I think is what I envision here. Look at what he says. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name. Why? Because you're a jerk? No, on account of the Son of Man. You see that very important distinction there? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. And then he says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so, blessed is hate. Is that an absolute? No. Titus 2, 11-14 says otherwise. Is it a maybe? Yes. Think about what happened to all of God's prophets. I mean... You know, Jeremiah, if, he had, if uh, the Southern Baptist Convention called him to give a report of his ministry, he'd have been fired. Amos, in a time of rampant idolatry, he's calling God's people back to judgment. What do they say? Get out of here, you old seer! We don't want you in this town. Why don't you go back to where you came from? What did they do to Daniel? Threw him in the lion's den. What did they do to John the Baptist? Off with his head. What did they do with Jesus Christ? They crucified Him. The issue here is this, and many of us need to listen to this. I myself, as I've said, when I preach this, I have to preach it to myself first. Listen, brothers and sisters, the desire to be liked is very, very strong. Amen? Amen? Listen to this. Kids long to be liked... Teens ache to be loved and struggle to be accepted. And I would say adults, all three. They want to be liked. They ache to be loved and they struggle to be accepted. Amen? But if our goal as Christians is everybody to like us, man, we set ourselves up for a bad, bad fall, haven't we? There's a parable that says this, even a dead dog can swim with the tide. You know what that means? If you're just a yes man or a yes woman, you're just a dead dog swimming with the tide. In order to swim against it, you know what you have to be? Alive and kicking. And brothers and sisters, God has called us to be alive and kicking against the world's value system. Not just drift with the dead. And guess what? If everybody likes you, you know what that means? You've probably had to pinch off a little bit here and sacrifice this principle here and that principle there, right? What does 2 Timothy 3.12 say? All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted. Not maybe. Will be. You ever had somebody talk bad about you because you're a Christian? Well, guess what? You're in good company. They did it with Paul. Paul had to defend himself. Remember John? He said, die tree fees, man. He's running all over town talking bad about me. But guess what? When he comes, he said, when he comes to town, we're going to have a little discussion. <laughs> and Timothy, Paul had to remind him, don't let people what? Look down on you because you're young. People are talking bad about him. Someone has said, Jesus promised his disciples three things that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. And J.K. Chesterton said, I like getting into hot water because it keeps you clean. So the reward is if you choose a light momentary affliction here, Paul says there's an eternal way to glory prepared for you. And 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, or heart even imagined what God has prepared for us. Amen? Amen? Because we're willing to put up with it. And so woe to you who speak well. Is that an absolute? No, people spoke well of Jesus. People spoke well of His followers. 
the issue again is that we really, a lot of times, want popularity more than we want anything else. And so two cautions here as we finish this up. One, it's not a license for us brothers and sisters. Remember what I said, hate, why? Because you're a jerk? No. Exclude because you're a bad witness? No. Revile you because you run around hollering and sticking your finger in everybody's uh, face saying, you sinner, you sinner? No. Spurn your name because you don't give love a bad name, you give Jesus a bad name? No. Y'all have heard me say this before about Gandhi. What did Gandhi say? I like your Christ, but I don't like your what? Christians. Imagine if he lived in the days of social media. Lord, have mercy. We really need to get rid of our social media and our phones, some don't we? We get on there and we roast each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When we ought to be holding each other up, and what we ought to be doing is inboxing each other and saying, I love you, and how can I be praying for you this week? But instead, we're beating each other down trying to be on top. There's a story told of this thing called the Gospel Blimp. And so these Christians in the town decide to rent this thing they call the Gospel Blimp. And the first thing they do is they just put catchy little things like Jesus saves on the side of the Gospel Blimp and they run it all over town. Well, then they get a better idea. They said, we're going to drop tracks out in everybody's front and backyard out of the Gospel Blimp. So they're piping you know, tracks out of the Gospel Blimp into folks' front and backyards and people are looking past that that there's all this trash in their yard, you know. Well, then they finally decide we're going to one-up that and we're going to put a PA system on it and we're just going to blare out, Jesus saves, you're going to go to hell if you don't you know, repent and believe, blah, blah, blah. And they're keeping folks up all day and all night. Well, the next day, guess what? The town sabotages the gospel blimp. And people say, well, we're being persecuted for Jesus. No, you were being jerks. You see, there's a difference. So it's not a license, and it ain't a guarantee. Folks are going to dislike you. You know, I know it's probably shocking to y'all, but not everybody likes my doctrine. In fact, I had a lady who I was very concerned she felt that she could have broke her ankle. And I kept saying, you have got to go get an x-ray. Well, I just want an anti-inflammatory. Ma'am, I'm going to give you an anti-inflammatory, but you've got to go get this x-ray. Well, I just want something for pain. Ma'am, I'm going to give you an anti-inflammatory and something for pain, but you've got to go get this x-ray. And I just kept on like, this could be broke. I'm trying to explain to you, the, you know, how severe this could be. And finally, she left out of the office without the prescription for either one of the anti-inflammatory or the pain pill and said, you are the rudest doctor ever. Now, I could say that's true or I could say that's false. And I don't know. I'm sure there are times I can be the rudest doctor ever. But you know what? Not everybody's going to like my doctrine. And you know what I have had to come to the conclusion of? Not everybody's going to like my pastoring or my preaching. It's been a hard lesson for me to learn, brothers and sisters. You know why? Because we are so prideful. That's why. I saw this illustration. I almost tempted to cut it out of here because I know the next thing that my wife is going to do is do exactly this. Jimmy and Kevin, you'll appreciate this. During a stressful time of Spurgeon's life, he was depressed because of how much criticism he was taking. His wife took a sheet of paper 
and printed the eight Beatitudes on it and tacked it to the ceiling over his bed so that he would saturate his mind morning and night that those who desire to live righteously will be persecuted. So if you come to 134 Bex Lane about two weeks, there are probably eight Beatitudes stapled over my ceiling. But if everybody likes you, you know what you've just shown yourself to be? What I would call a cubic zirconia Christian. Y'all know what a cubic zirconia Christian is? Looks all pretty and nice, but you know what? They're fake. All sparkle and no substance. And so as we conclude, recently another bomb made headlines. Y'all remember this? The Moab, the mother of all bombs that we dropped in Afghanistan. You know the one bomb we all fear? What is it? A nuclear bomb. Is there a scene or a picture that is more chilling than that of a mushroom cloud? I just saw this book as an illustration that I'm about to use, and so I read it while we were on vacation, The Last Babylon. It's from 1959. It's written by Pat Frank. It's one of the first apocalyptic novels of the nuclear age. It's an excellent, excellent read. It's about a nuclear holocaust that ravages the U.S. A thousand years of civilization and millions of people are wiped out like that. And it's about a group of people in a town in Florida that are spared but then struggle to survive. And the name comes from a code that the guy who is living in Florida, his brother is a bigwig in the government and living in Omaha, Nebraska. And he says that he's sending his wife and kids down to live with him and the code word, because he says that a nuclear war is impending, that they had was this. A last Babylon is what he got on the telegraph. You say, where does that come from? You know where it comes from. The book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 18 and we're going to be done. What is Babylon? It's the personification of the world system. And that world system has done what? prostituted itself to the devil. To money, gluttony, laughter, and popularity. And look at what we read in Revelation 18, 9-11. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour... Your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Look at verses 19 to 20. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. You see, Jesus has a foab, a father of all bombs. And it's a weight in the world's value system. And he's going to blow it to smithereens. And then he's going to put a new heaven and a new earth. Amen? You know the sad thing about that is? It's not just going to be the earth that's going to go up in smoke. You believe in global warming, Dr. B? Absolutely. You know why? Because 2 Peter 3 teaches that this place is going to go up in flames. And the sad thing is that when that happens in that hour of judgment, there's going to be millions of people that there will be no other chance. There ain't no big pram out of purgatory. It's going to be, that's it. What are we doing about it? And so these words of Jesus still stand up today to us. Alas, Babylon, blessed are you when you do this. 
Woe to you when you do that. And so he says, Blessed are you if you're poor, hungry, sorrowful, and rejected. Are we his followers? Am I? Are you? Are we his disciples? Am I? Are you? Then we will truly understand that the blessed state are these things we've talked about this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time that you have given us to come together, Father, on this wonderful weekend and to just celebrate you, Father. Father, you have blessed us in so many ways, but help us as a country to turn around and begin to bless you, Father. All it takes is a small minority of Christians that are committed, Father, to share the gospel for revival to break out in this land. And Father, it starts with us on our knees and in our prayer closets praying for you to heal this land, and so we pray that you would do that. We acknowledge this morning, Father, that our ultimate freedom doesn't come from the President of the United States. It doesn't come from being a citizen of the United States. It comes from knowing the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, and being a citizen of heaven. And we thank you that you have freed us forever through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so as we come to this time of invitation, we ask that you would bless it in his wonderful, precious, and powerful name, we pray. Amen. So as we come to this time of invitation... Here's how I want to start it. When we were coming back from Yosemite on the way to San Francisco, I saw a car that had a bumper sticker that said this, Reproductive rights are human rights. Now I want you to follow that logic. If that's true, then where did those human rights come from? Where did they originate from? Chance? Fate? Evolution? Or a creator? And if they came from a creator, then who has authority to set rules and boundaries for them? Us? Or him as the creator? Him. My point is this, that even a bumper sticker in California teaches us that we are each personally accountable to a personal God that created us. Amen? You know why people believe in atheism? You know why they believe there is no God? It's not because there's not enough evidence to the contrary. The reason that they believe that is because they don't want to be personally accountable to a personal God that created them. Amen? Amen. And so I'm going to ask you if you're here today and you don't know Jesus is Lord and Savior. The Bible is clear that it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. Not die twice. Not die once and people pray you out of purgatory. Die once and then the judgment. And so are you ready to stand before the Lord today because it ain't going to be the good person gospel that saves you. It ain't going to be the good works that you bring. It's going to be that I'm standing there dressed in Christ and His righteousness alone. Amen? And so if you don't know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you will come and receive that free gift of salvation and eternal life He offers. And so maybe some of you here aren't prepared for the judgment today because something that I have spoken in this message has stirred you and there's something you need to do different in your life then come and lay that on the altar or just what you have been praying and fasting this week, something you want to come and just lay down here. Or if God has uh, had you here worshiping with us and you've been visiting and He's calling you to join us in membership or you have received Him as Lord and Savior but never followed through in believer's baptism, whatever it may be that God is calling you today as we stand and sing, listen to God as He speaks to you this morning. Stand page 294. Have thy own way, Lord, have thine own way, thou art the
Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you that you have called us to be followers, God. We thank you uh, for this week coming up and the nation that you give us, God. We just yes. don't ever want to take it for granted, and especially never want to take you for granted, God. We just thank you for calling us. Thank you for this message that Dr. Cook brought. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>
so athletic. When you walk in, you can check out running. I don't want none of them, that's for sure. Because the forward, they got a nice little leg on. I mean, he looks completely in the situation. He's just a little bitty old shot. I'm saying since you got a little bit of a match. The chain purchase is on the same time. Maybe I'll have to blow the burger on my face.
Yeah. 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 When you start, so you totally rely on it. Uh, 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 he had on sounds. 